Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in French Studies, discussions with scholars of France and the Francophone world about their new books. I'm your host, Roxanne Panchassi. My guest today is Michael Quas, the author of Contraband, Louis Mondrin and the Making of a Global Underground, and the book was published by Harvard University Press in 2014. Hi there, Michael. Hi, Roxanne. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today. I wonder if you could get us started by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself and what got you interested in working on France. Ah, well, I guess, I guess it goes back a ways. Um, when I was in college, I read a book by Natalie Davis, a collection of essays uh, called Society and Culture of Early Modern France. And I think it was her essays that really got, drew me into French history and the early modern world more generally. I don't think I'm the only... French historian who was drawn into the profession by Natalie Davis. Um, I, I, I hear the story a lot, but it's clearly what sort of put the early modern period and France in particular on the map for me. Um, and then I got interested in debates about the French Revolution, which is a, obviously a very dynamic field and a very contested one. And I like the sort of uh, the rigor of the debate. Um, uh, and that sort of put me on a trajectory to graduate school. Um, and uh, I went to Michigan, where French history was really very lively in the late 80s and early 90s. Um, there was a lot going on there, and that really worked out well for me, I think. And what brought you to the subject of this book in particular? Um, well, I, I wrote a first book on um, fiscality, taxation, and political culture. Um, and so I liked those questions. Uh, and then I shifted to studying consumption, the rise of consumption in the 18th century, uh, and the debate on luxury, which was a kind of prominent debate in this period. Um, and that got me into questions of consumption. But uh, I kind of grew uh, a little dissatisfied with my own work and with others in the field uh, working on consumption, because it, it seemed to move away from political questions. Uh, and, and, and so I wanted to find a way to get back to those political questions that I'd always been dealing with and yet keep the consumption aspect of my work. And smuggling became a way to do that. And so I thought, huh, that's an, that's an excellent way to do both and to bring in the global dimension as well. So once I kind of found my way into smuggling, I, I didn't look back and I, I sort of plunged in. Well, and I want to ask you about all of those different things that you've just raised. So the book is about Louis Mondrin, this notorious 18th century smuggler, but it's also a book about a much wider context and about this consumer revolution that took place in early modern France. So could you give us a bit of background regarding that revolution just in broad terms? Yeah, absolutely. Well, first, I should say that not everyone is happy with the term consumer revolution. Right. And, this, you know, there seems to be so many revolutions these days, they're hard to keep track of. <laughs> um, and I think that uh, some people suggest that, you know, revolution is a, a too strong a term. But I, I'll talk about that in a second. But I'll use the term just for the sake of, uh, you know, teaching this moment here uh, of the 18th century. Um, but basically, there's clearly a growth of consumption in the 18th century. And first, uh, historians of England took notice of this, notably John Brewer, but, but many others. And um, it became clear that it was not constricted to uh, 18th century England, but there was growth, a growth of consumption uh, in 18th century France, uh, in the Netherlands, Northwestern Europe in general, and beyond. And so the, the kind of original uh, understanding of the consumer revolution expanded geographically. Uh, and in France, you know, we had wonderful professors uh, like Daniel Roche writing about the growth of consumption in this period. And usually when they talk about consumption uh, in this period, they're talking about the growth of clothing. I mean, there's always been clothing, of course, but mm -hmm. people's wardrobes uh, broaden, they become um, denser, that people have more articles of clothing. Home furnishings, so that people's homes um, seem to be filling up with stuff. Um, and this can be sort of decorative stuff. This can be kitchenware, um, tables, chairs, all kinds of furniture. And then also there's an obvious growth in colonial products. Mm -hmm. uh, these are things like sugar and tobacco and tea and coffee and chocolate. Things that, by the way, we could talk about this later, they're, they're produced uh, in a slave system a slave economy uh, across the Atlantic and elsewhere. So uh, there seemed to be, and this is odd, before the Industrial Revolution, there seemed to be a growth in consumption. Most people assume that any sort of major growth in consumption 
would occur after the Industrial Revolution when you have the factories kind of cranking out goods. But it seems that before the introduction of factories in Europe, uh, in Western Europe at least, there was there was a kind of uh, a, a serious amount of growth in uh, certain kinds of consumption. And so people are really looking at that and people have called it a consumer revolution, um, though some people suggest that revolution, as I said, is too strong a term because, you know, it, it took a long time for this to happen. And there are questions about the social depth of this so-called revolution. That is, you know, who really is consuming more? There's still a whole lot of people, uh, working people who are not consuming more in this period. And you don't want to make it sound like everyone is doing just beautifully uh, mm-hmm. and consuming more when that's really not happening. So, Michael, contraband looks at smuggling and illicit trade. And you make the point that the violence of consumption and of this consumer revolution, longer process, whatever we want to call it, um, particularly within the metropole of this colonial system, um, is often left out of the story of the this early modern period of transformation. So I wonder if you could say a little bit more about that. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting question. It struck me as I was reading all this work, including my own work, that, I, that, that uh, we were sort of depicting a, an 18th century that was uh, a little too happy, a little too rosy. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, we, you know, people are consuming goods and retailers are describing goods in new ways and there seems to be new values like privacy and comfort and pleasure that are coming. It, it, it just seemed a little bit too idyllic. And so um, what I wanted to get at was to get at the underbelly of this world and to suggest that there is a is a kind of dark side to the rise of consumption and to the globalization, the global trade that sustain that consumption. And so smuggling and the violence associated with the underground economy, to me, was a great way into that question. I want to kind of take a, well, I don't know if it's a detour, but ask a sort of methodological question, um, you know, just the the kind of nuts and bolts of this, because you make the point in the introduction, I think that that some of this has to do with some of this emphasis on a happier enlightenment has to do with the sources that historians have looked at. And you, you, you make a point about, you know, using probate documents and that kind of thing. And, and I'm wondering if um, you could just say a little bit more about the sources that you use in this book to get at this underbelly, as you as you call it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the sources that that most people use for consumption are probate inventories, which which list what uh, how much stuff someone has at the time of his or her death. Um, so it gives you a kind of frozen picture of the goods someone has. It doesn't really tell you where those goods came from, how they got there, what kind of tensions uh, surrounded their circulation, and things like that. So uh, and and other the other source people tend to use are are, are kind of advertisements. You know, what are people saying about all these new wonderful goods? And of course, advertisements are very positive <laughs> and they're going to kind of give the impression that these are very positive, uh, emancipatory uh, goods. That is that this consumption is very positive and emancipatory. So I was trying to find a different set of sources that would take me into the underground economy um, and reveal the violence. And for, for my, I, I have quite varied sources, but the kind of main chunk of those sources um, were the the administrative correspondence um, surrounding smuggling in the provinces. Um, I used judicial sources, uh, trials uh, rec- uh, uh, of smugglers, um, and then I, you know, I, I also looked at popular print media. So I looked at um, the way smugglers are depicted, and then I go all the way to you know, sort of your learned literature of the Enlightenment to see how smuggling was uh, represented. Uh, among the uh, learned elites. Throughout the book, Michael, you make this important point that France during this period must be understood um, in a more global perspective, and that that includes thinking about how, um, you know, France participated in a larger kind of global colonial set of networks and and a a system, but also how that affected um, the impact that had uh, domestically. Um, so I wanted to ask you to say a little bit more about that. You're uh, turning to this sort of more global perspective and what that, that represents for you. I think French historians, uh, certainly of the early modern period, but uh, arguably of the late modern period too, I think we're a little bit slow to look um, beyond France at the wider world. Um, I certainly was in my, in my training and in, uh, with respect to my first book. Um, and so I wanted to um, see what France's place in the world was and how that affected 
the growth of consumption. Um, uh, look at French Empire, uh, the uh, regulatory controls of overseas goods, uh, taxation of overseas goods coming in. Um, all these things were ways of getting at uh, France in the wider world. For me, it, it, it was it was not something that happened sort of artificially. I. I I was looking at the underground economy and following the goods. And when I realized I needed to follow the goods wherever they led um, to their source, places where they were produced and the rest of it, I realized, well, I really need to get way out of France for some of this project. Mm-hmm. I need to follow these goods back to Asia, to the Americas, um, to Africa. Uh, and for me, that was a really exciting part of the book because I had to learn so much to to uh, to master um, that material. That was something that I really, um, had to bone up on and I did. And it, I think it made, for me, it made the book a lot more interesting to write. So we've talked now about this sort of global turn, if we want to call it that. Um, well, I guess I just called it that. <laughs> um, what about this term globalization? Um, I think a lot of people associate that term with sort of more contemporary economic issues and transformations and questions. So why use that term to talk about the 18th century? How is that term working for you in the book? Yeah, yeah, that's that's a, a, an excellent question. Um, globalization is a tricky term because we, you know, so many people use it in in daily life today. Um, and I, I don't, I'm not really crazy about the way regular people, non non academics, use the term. Uh, it seems to imply, and academics too, for that matter, it seems to imply a kind of very smooth process whereby, um, you know, the nation state declines uh, and goods flow from near to far, uh, communications zip across borders, money goes across borders. Um, and there's a sense that this is somehow, as I said, a very smooth process that's not necessarily problematic. Um, but I think, you know, when, when certainly studying the early modern period, um, this process was anything but smooth. So I wanted to keep the term globalization to refer to the integration of world markets, um, which I think does take place in the early modern period as well mm-hmm. as the modern period. Um, but I wanted to make sure that the globalization I was talking about um, was not too smooth and that, that could incorporate questions of contestation and conflict that were inherent in the process of globalization. So uh, I want to keep the word but sort of adjust its meaning a little bit to account for a more complicated process. Uh, because if you look at the early period, um, uh, you know, what I call early modern globalization, um, globalization really in the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries, um, it was anything but smooth. <laughs> uh, you had very powerful states competing for power in uh, far-flung colonies. Um, and... Uh, you know, even though trade linkages were developing uh, and a kind of global economy was forming, it was always very much contested, uh, conflict-ridden, uh, and a lot of war uh, occurred over these economic questions. Uh, there's sort of economic war that was waged for political reasons, political war for economic reasons, um, and it was that rough-and-tumble world uh, that I wanted to capture uh, and I think one can capture it through through smuggling. So, Michael, the book um, starts with, well, it starts in the 17th century and then runs right up to a discussion of the French Revolution. And, and, and then you talk about sort of more contemporary issues and legacies and things like that. But what what about this periodization? Why does the book begin and end when it does? Yeah, well, you know... I was looking at the underground. If you look at the underground economy in this period, there's just about everything that is exchanged in there. It's a, I mean, there's so many hundreds of products are uh, being exchanged illegally. Um, but, you know, if you if you notice, uh, if you look at it closely, there's a particular evolution. And it seems like the underground economy globalizes. Um, that is, um, it, be, it incorporates global commodities um, in, in, uh, in a marked way in the late 17th century. Uh, and that kind of continues up to the revolution. Um, and that's because of Louis XIV. Um, uh, Louis XIV made two major interventions in the global economy uh, that stimulated the growth of 
the uh, of the underground economy. Uh, one was uh, the at uh, the um, prohibition on calico. Calico was uh, an Indian produced textile that the French East India Company and other East India companies in Europe brought into Europe. Mm-hmm. Uh, it became a very popular commodity, uh, almost too popular for its own good because traditional textile producers began to lobby against the introduction of this good. Uh, and so Louis XIV responded to that by declaring a prohibition on calico. And other rulers in other parts of Europe did the same thing. The other uh, intervention that Louis XIV made was to create a tobacco monopoly. Uh, this was tobacco was come, came from the New World, and uh, the idea was that the crown could make a lot of money by monopolizing this trade, uh, importing tobacco from the New World, and then selling that tobacco to royal subjects throughout France at very high prices. And so these two interventions, and there are other ones, but these are two I concentrate on, uh, in most part because these are the goods that Mondrian will smuggle. Um, these two interventions end up, I think, widening the underground economy to include things like tobacco and calico and, and, and a number of other goods. Um, and so that's why I start at the, at, you know, under Louis XIV in the late 17th century. Yeah, no, I'm, I, I appreciate that. It's really important to sort of lay the groundwork for, for the rest of our conversation. You have this great moment in the introduction where you say, I'm quoting here, the, the criminality and violence associated with illicit markets posed a serious challenge to states whose very policies produced them. So I wanted to just ask you to say a little bit more about that dynamic. And also, to, before we get to talking about Mondrian, to ask you about the very ominous sounding <laughs> and ominous in other ways, general farm. And to just set that up, what was the general farm and what role does it play in, in, in the book? Yeah, I think that's um, important to realize that, you know, states always intervene in economies. I mean, mm-hmm. this is a fiction to think that states never intervene or that, that there's a possibility that they can intervene um, despite kind of neoliberal hopes. Um, states do intervene in economies for all kinds of reasons. Sometimes they're good reasons, sometimes they're not. Um, but when they do intervene, they create opportunities for um, fraud, illicit trade, smuggling, and things like that. So um, in, this, in the late 17th century, when we had this broader push uh, by the monarchy into the global economy, um, it's no surprise that there's this uh, kind of um, underground that forms around those interventions. Um, so I hope that's that's clear. Mm-hmm. And, and um, one way that the the, the crown could um, uh, police these interventions, to institute these interventions, uh, was to rely on this gigantic company called the General Farm. Farm farm refers to a tax farm. Um, this was a period in Europe when a lot of rulers uh, didn't raise their own taxes. Uh, especially their own indirect taxes, taxes on on goods uh, and things like that. Um, and instead, they would uh, farm out their taxes. Um, and this, uh, the French kings did, uh, and they ultimately relied on this one large farm called the General Farm. And it was the General Farm that took the tobacco monopoly in hand, that managed the tobacco monopoly, and it also policed the calico prohibition. So the general farm was very much at the center of policing these interventions in the economy. Um, and uh, it was an enormous uh, organization. Um, uh, by the late 18th century, it, it, it consisted of about 30,000 employees, 20,000 of whom were armed guards. So it's a kind of paramilitary organization. Um and it also had these financiers, the Famier Généraux at the, at the very top of the farm. And these financiers were very wealthy and loaned enormous sums of money to the kings of France. Um, and that gave them, obviously, a lot of credit at court, literally and figuratively, to use uh, Claire Croston's uh, terminology. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, these financiers, because they lent such huge sums to the crown, were able to get very favorable deals on farming taxes, on handling taxes, on handling the calico prohibition. Um, and so, uh, you know, it was really the farm that created an immense amount of tension in society because one had this enormous private financial company operating whole parts of the state. Um, and that generated a lot of hostility 
uh, uh, from consumers and taxpayers and, and, and others uh, in French society at the time. The General Farm is really quite a striking institution. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. I, I always knew about it. I mean, I've worked on fiscality for years and years and years, um, but actually delving into it in this way, looking at the provincial records of it, you know, one, you know, one can see just how large and, and, and strong and overwhelming it was. It had weaknesses and vulnerabilities, of course, and there was a lot of fraud and illiteracy among the uh, employees. Um, but still, it's a quite an impressive organization. And I don't think we can really understand uh, what's going on in French politics, French society, French economy uh, in this period without uh, an understanding of, of the farm. Okay, let's talk about the star of, of the show here then, Louis Mondrin. So who was he? I mean, I know that's an incredibly complicated question no, to answer. And how does his individual story that you track, you know, with such richness, um, illuminate the broader arguments that you're interested in making in the book? Yeah, well, Louis, Louis Mondrin is an interesting character. And when I found him, when I was sort of reading up on smuggling, discovered Mondrin, uh, looked at what I had already been written about him, I realized I could sort of bend my book around this narrative. So that the book is kind of a microhistory in a sense, but mm-hmm. it's so a kind of global and national history. Um, I didn't want to overly privilege one viewpoint, but kind of running through the whole book is this story of Mondrin, because in, he is such a, an intriguing character. Um, he was born in 1725 in uh, southeastern France in a, in a small town called Saint-Antienne-de-Saint-Joire, which is um, in the province of Dauphiné. Uh, if you know it at all, maybe you know Grenoble, which is the capital of Dauphiné in the southeast. Um, this is not too far from the border, which is, you know, partially explains what happened. Uh, not too far from the border with Savoie uh, and Switzerland. So he grew up in this family. Um it wasn't a poor family. Uh, it was not a rich family. It was sort of a, a family of solid, small-town merchants. Um, and uh, Louis Mondrin's father died when Louis was still pretty young, about 17. And so Louis Mondrin was kind of thrust into uh, the position of head of household. Um, and this was a kind of tough position for him to pursue. Uh, he tried his best. He did pretty well. Uh, but he went on this kind of uh, financial venture of uh, provisioning the troops, uh, the French troops outside Nice, um, and this is during the war, war of Austrian succession. So he gets a kind of co- government contract, in a sense. He is a local merchant, after all, to um, load up all these mules and walk them down to uh, 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 around Nice, to the mountains behind Nice, and distribute food and other provisions for the troops. Um, it's a pretty good idea. A lot of people began, a lot of great financiers began this way. Um, but it turns out to be a disaster. Uh, the war ends in the middle of the project, which means no one's really going to pay him for any of his stuff. Um, and on his return, a lot of the, a lot of the mules died and the mules were obviously a major part of his capital expense going into the whole project. Um, and he comes back home, uh, uh, after this calamitous, uh, venture and uh, slowly drifts into uh, a crime, a life of crime and into smuggling. It's very hard to uncover this. The sources are limited, but we could kind of see him and his brothers. He had a few brothers um, kind of descending into a life of crime, um, whether that's sort of counterfeiting or um, petty theft. Uh, but for, for, for Louis Mondrin, where he kind of ended up settling is with smuggling. And so from his little town, I, you know, he sort of followed uh, the chain of goods, the flow of goods upstream uh, towards, you know, across the border to Savoie, which, which is now part of France, but then it was not part of France. It was part of the kingdom of Piedmont, Sardinia. And he crosses the border uh, and there are a lot of smugglers there. Uh, it's kind of known as a smuggling haven. Um, and he gets a start in smuggling, joins a band of smugglers, and eventually heads a band of smugglers, uh, and then engages in some very uh, extensive smuggling expeditions into France. Um, he starts off small, of course, but um, it gets big right away. And this is in the years 1754 and 1755. 
Those were the years uh, mm-hmm. in really doing his, his, most of his smuggling. And these were very large campaigns. I mean, they could last three weeks, four weeks. Um, they could be involved. They could involve um, scores of fellow smugglers. At one point, his band is over a hundred strong. Um, these people are armed. They're on horseback. Uh, it's basically what he becomes is he kind of creates a private army of smugglers. Uh, this is very lucrative, um, but there's a sense that um, he's improvising the whole time uh, commercially, but also I would suggest politically. And that's sort of where um, I think his story gets interesting is that mm-hmm. um, he's not quite an, a typical smuggler and that he's not kind of hiding the shadows. He develop he develops ways to smuggle in a very brash, confrontational sort of way that has uh, d- distinct political overtones. And so that's where the sort of politics of smuggling come in through his example. Well, and he becomes this sort of mythological figure, right? And I guess, you know, you, you say this thing about his, you just talked about the politics, but you also talk about this sort of notion of a, a political theater um, that Mandrin embodies and enacts. Yeah, well, what he does this is what gets people's attention. And of course, he's still a major figure today. A movie just came out about him a few years ago. Um, you know, he's still a popular folk hero in France today. And that was mm-hmm. that as well. Um, but if you go back to the origins of what got people's attention, for example, the attention of newspapers at the time, um, before an explosion of literature after he's executed, which I can talk about. But in this earlier, you know, while he's smuggling, what gets people's attention are these two major innovations that he uh, attempts um, uh, during his smuggling expeditions. So the first thing he does, uh, and this is sort of what I just sort of was getting at, but didn't develop very well, is that instead of hiding in the shadows and staying away from agents of the farm who are constantly policing the markets, he decides to smuggle openly, openly, so that instead of, like I said, hiding the shadows and, you know, hey, come here, do you want some tobacco? You know, and there are plenty of records of smugglers who do that sort of thing, you know, tap someone on the shoulder at a market and say, hey, come with me to my apartment. I have some really good tobacco. Um, instead of doing that, uh, he and his men basically ride into town and take over the public square in these small towns and sometimes not so small towns, and they secure the town uh, and open their own public market uh, in which they sell tobacco, but also calico, especially early on. They were selling both um, directly to consumers, even though this is entirely illegal. And this shocked people and impressed people. Obviously, the people of the towns were a little bit scared of them. Uh, mm-hmm. These are well-armed men and they're rough Um uh, many of them aren't well-educated. Many of them served as soldiers or fugitives. Um, they know how to handle a gun. Uh, that was obvious to, to, the, to the consumers. But the consumers are also very much drawn to the goods. Um, and they, they flock to these public markets. Uh, and this gave, uh, obviously, uh, Mondrian quite a bit of publicity, negative and positive publicity, um, Obviously, the, the farm agents were alarmed at this and, and you know, back in, at, at Versailles, ministers of state are scrambling to figure out what to do with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, but on the ground, the consumers really liked it. Um, and the other major innovation, and this one is, I think, is even more stunning. What it, it, to me, it's, it was more stunning, um, was that eventually he says, OK, enough of these public markets. What I'm going to do is market my illegal contraband tobacco directly to the farm that is running the royal tobacco monopoly. <laughs> so so what he's saying is, um, uh, I mean, this is like is if you live in a state that, that, that has state um, liquor stores, for example. This would be like going into a state liquor store with 100 men armed uh, and forcing the liquor store retailers to buy all your... <laughs> Know, uh, your alcohol that was, you know, brewed Ill- illegally um, in your basement or something. So um, what he does is he takes uh, Mondrian, he holds these farm uh, retailers and warehouses at gunpoint and um, says, I'm going to offer you a deal that you can't refuse. <laughs> uh, and they accept the deal. Um, and basically he unloads a lot of his cargo, a lot of the tobacco, uh, and then the farm agent uh, um, uh, accepts it because he doesn't have a choice and pays him what he can. Sometimes these farm agents didn't have a lot of cash on hand. 
So Montreal would make them go about um, and ask uh, neighbors uh, and notables in town to help cover the expenses um, and gather up the money, and they would pay Mondrian and his gang the money. Um, and then um, at some point, Mondrian actually wrote, would write them a receipt for the transaction <laughs> as if this were a normal uh, free exchange. So that Mondrian would write a receipt. He, sometimes he had notaries uh, write receipts for him. Um, and the receipts were there, I argue, and I think I have pretty good evidence for this, to, the receipts were there to, to make sure that the, the low-level farm agents could kind of pass the receipt up the chain of command at the farm so that ultimately the farmer's general uh, would have to incur the costs of the forced sale. So what we have here is, is a very strange kind of uh, exchange, economic exchange. It's an exchange that um, is coercive, mm-hmm. um, and yet it's also an exchange that pretends not to be coercive in some sense. Uh, Mondrian did not want to be seen as a thief, as a criminal in that sense. Um, he, he even says at one point, you know, my men are not thieves. Um, uh, and yet it's a coercive exchange nonetheless. And this is where I, I, I make an analogy between this kind of exchange and uh, what at the time were called uh, taxation populaire, which are kind of food riots, mm-hmm. where uh, consumers of food um, kind of forced uh, retailers and traders of food, especially grain, to lower their price in times of dearth when prices are very high. Um, these aren't the exact same things, and I want to overdraw the comparison, but they're, they're similar in the sense that... Um, the activists in both case are uh, basically forcing an exchange, coercing an exchange, but distinguishing themselves from an illegitimate, uh, from the kind of exchange an illegitimate thief would extort. I want to ask you some more about that. But before we do, maybe just to sort of close off his story in some sense, that the book charts his rise and his fall. So so what happens to him? Give us the... Yeah, <laughs> Don't right, leave no. us hanging. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, well, you know, as, as he's, you know, marauding through the countryside after, you know, several months of this, um, you know, the, the ministers of state are desperate to put him down to stop this from, from occurring anymore. Um, and so they enlist basically any sort of state agency, policing agency that, that, that can be enlisted. Um, so, uh, towns are expected to have militias. Um, there's the Marie-Saucet, which is the kind of rural constabulary, um, is brought into it. Um, uh, the farm has its enormous police force, um, which attempts to stop him. Uh, none of these institutions can really do it. They're not designed to take down huge gangs, armed gangs. And so eventually the, um, the monarchy has to bring in the army. Uh, Louis XV and his war minister, uh, D'Argenson bring in the army mm-hmm. and they bring the army first to capture him. Um, and they do this illegally. They, uh, the, the army, the, the, the army, uh, a huge battalion sneaks across the river into Savoie, foreign territory, illegally at night and kidnap Mondrin. He happens to be in the chateau belonging to a magistrate from the Parlement of Grenoble. So he had very high connections. Um, this was kind of one of the interesting things. Um, at any rate, they pluck him from the chateau, <coughs> excuse me, and uh, bring him back to France and put him on trial um, at a special commission. And I can talk a little bit about that. There's a, there's in the process has been a revamping of the criminal justice system in this period to deal with smuggling and mm-hmm. smugglers like Mondrian. And they put him on trial. Uh, they find him guilty and they execute him. Um, I'm not giving too much away here since one of my chapters is entitled The Execution of <laughs> Um And uh, they execute him. And it's really after his execution that he really becomes a legend. There's an absolute explosion of popular literature and songs and engravings um, uh, after he is executed. That's a, you know, there's some material on Mondrian, some printed material on Mondrian before he's executed, but that's really when you get an enormous uh, burst of literature on Mondrian. Um, and so at that point, after his execution, he lives on in the memory uh, in a very political way, and it's a contested way as well. I and mean, this is a, 
it's a, it's a uh, what he what he means um, is different for different people. What his story suggests, what his tale tells, um, and so there's a there's a sort of a competition over what to make of his legend. Um, some people demonize him, others others heroize him. Um, uh, some people have very mixed feelings about him, and that's all part of this huge literature that, that surfaces after his execution. Um, I want to come back to something you said. Well, really, I think one of the most interesting ideas in the book for me is the way that this underground, this dark side of enlightenment and the consumer revolution transformation, that it's not that the underside or the underbelly is, uh, you know, in binary opposition to the above ground, but that these things are mutually constitutive in this period. And you just raised this question of, you know, how smuggling and its violence leads to reform. And earlier you said something about, you know, how the state actually produces some of the things that it's trying to control and regulate. So um, some of the the illicit activities. So um, how did smuggling and its violence provoke reform in in, in the judicial system or the economic system in France? Yeah, yeah, I'm glad you asked. Um, Yeah, there's a there's a sort of feedback system that develops in this in this period. So that as the farm is doing its policing and trying to uh, roll back the underground, um, uh, smugglers respond by forming into gangs, just like Mondrin, but he's not the only gang out there. There are many of them. Um, and as the gangs form and get bigger, then the farm responds to that by, um, uh, growing, uh, by growing, by adding employees, um, and coming up with new modes of policing. They're experimenting with, uh, Arrest notices, these signalements, which give descriptions of people, uh, of, of noted criminals. Um, so there's a kind of uh, feedback system between the underground and the policing mechanisms of the absolutist, absolute state. Um, now, what happens is uh, that that also occurs within the criminal justice system. So, yes, there's an expansion of policing within the farm and beyond the farm in many ways. But there's also a change in the judicial system uh, that is meant to roll back the underground through a kind of deeper judicial repression. Um, and how that happens is, is, is quite interesting. First, uh, the Crown uh, issues edicts uh, hardening the penal code against smuggling. And so you get tougher and tougher uh, um, sentences for smugglers. Um, uh, for example, if you're caught in a gang, uh, an armed gang especially, you can be um, executed, right? You, you can be um, sentenced to death. Uh, or you could be sent to the galleys, which is not a, a, a pretty fate. Um, or if you were just, even if you're just uh, caught selling illegal tobacco, that is non-farm royal tobacco, um you can be fined these exorbitant fines. There was a thousand leave fine for someone who is simply dealing in uh, contraband tobacco. Now, a thousand leave is an enormous sum. It's about, you know, three or four times the salary of an ordinary worker in a town or in the countryside. So that um, most people couldn't afford to pay it. And if you couldn't afford to pay that thousand leave fine, then you, you, you would automatically be thrown into the galere, into the galleys. Um, so this was a huge ratcheting it up, ratcheting up of the criminal justice system. Um, by the time all the, um, all the laws are created and these new, uh, courts are put into place, and I'll talk about the courts in a second, um, smuggling becomes the single most prosecuted crime in 18th century France. Hmm. That's something I didn't realize until I was doing this project. So mm-hmm. this, this was very interesting to me because it showed me that there are connections between the global trade and state formation and the underground and the actual judicial system of France. Everything got caught up in this. Obviously, there are contemporary echoes of this that I'd be happy to talk about later. Um, and so the, 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 the last change to, to the judicial system, in addition to hardening the penal code, was to create a new system of courts. Because the old courts usually didn't, you know, a lot of magistrates were reluctant to impose such heavy sentences on smugglers because they didn't think smuggling was such a bad crime. There's a kind of normative, normative challenge here for the government to stigmatize smugglers, 
to punish smugglers in an environment uh, in which people didn't really think smuggling was all that bad. It seemed to be a crime that didn't hurt anyone. It just sort of maybe took a little money from the state. So what? Uh, and so there's a problem with prosecuting this sort of crime. So what the government does, what the, what the crown does, is um, create new kinds of law courts. First, they create courts uh, on which the provincial intendants sit. And provincial intendants are uh, commissaire, they're the kind of fish, royal officials that can be revoked and therefore have to respond to the king and the royal council. And the intendants then prosecute these trials. That works a little bit better than the old judicial system. Um, but there are even limits for what the intendants can do. And therefore, it's the intendant of Dauphiné, uh, uh intendant named Fontagneux, who becomes very frustrated uh, trying to prosecute um, violent uh, smugglers in his province. And he asks the controller general, Henri, to create a new kind of super commission, a new kind of super court that will judge all cases involving smuggling gangs and violence. And uh, this is how the, the Commission de Valence, Commission of Valence, is created in 1733. Um, and other commissions are created elsewhere in France after Valence. Uh, there's a commission in Reims in, in the northeast, uh, in Caen, and in Paris. And there's a kind of small commission in Franche-Comté. So that there's a new layer of uh, courts that are at, that 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 is added on to uh, the other layers, and it's designed to really go after uh, the big smugglers. Um, and like I said, the effect of this is quite extraordinary. Um, these courts are 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 pretty effective, uh, and many many people are executed, uh, but many many more in the tens of thousands uh, are sent to the galleys. And so there's a whole. Uh, chain of events that leads to a radical revamping of the criminal justice system under the old regime only because of this underground economy uh, and the attempt to repress it. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot, there's a lot going on. It's not just a, it's, this isn't just an economic problem, even just a political problem or a fiscal problem. It becomes a judicial problem as well. So Michael, how do we connect the story of Mondrin and smuggling and this underground, um, in economic, political, and then, you know, all the sort of cultural representations and ramifications of this to that intense field of debate and questions about, I mean, I have to ask you about this, about the origins right. of the French Revolution and the course of the French Revolution. What's the, how do we get from your story and analysis in the book to, to thinking differently about the French Revolution if, if we do? Yeah, no, that's an excellent and a very difficult question. You know, I, it does not, I, I should be careful here because the, the smuggling, you know, does not cause the French Revolution. The French Revolution is a very complicated event. Um, we know a lot about it now, uh, after years and decades, centuries of debate. Um, so what I try to do is to show how this question of smuggling, uh, feeds into the revolution. And I think it does feed into it uh, in a couple of ways. One way is through what I've been talking about in terms of rebellion. That is, there's a kind of there's a there's a, a kind of there's a history of rebellion of popular revolt that uh, that has been rewritten in a sense by historians like Jean Nicolas. Uh, Jean Nicolas is a, is a French historian who works on uh, sort of popular consciousness and revolt under the old regime. And, you know, he, he revised the historiography. And I'll just give you the background quickly because it's fairly important. Mm -hmm. um, I think before Nicolas, there was a general assumption that, um, you know, one of the one of the amazing things Louis XIV did with the uh, his so-called absolute state was to um, stop or at least severely curtail rebellion in the countryside. Now, to some extent, this, this can't be denied. I mean, if you look at some of the huge rebellions of the 17th century before the period of Louis XIV, um, uh, rebellions like the Fronde, but in the countryside in the 1630s and 40s and 50s, these were enormous province-wide rebellions, usually against taxes or uh, military conscription. This was a, a period of intense war, the Thirty Years' War. And uh, the fact is, when, when Louis XIV does uh, begin to rule, uh, he's determined not to let this happen again, not to let 
uh, rebellion take hold again. And to some extent, he's successful. That is, if you look at the period before uh, Louis XIV, that is in the early 17th century, and compared to the period after Louis XIV in the 18th century, um, these enormous province-wide or city-wide uh, large-scale rebellions do decline. And so the story of rebellion used to be that, yeah, there was a lot of rebellion uh, in the 17th century. Louis XIV sort of cleans everything up, builds his absolute state. We now know that it's not as absolute as he thought it was like to have been. And then things sort of calm down. Uh, the politics change. There's definitely a lot of conflict in the 18th century, but not this kind of popular rebellion. And then, bam, the revolution uh, hits in 1789. So what Nicolas showed was that uh, actually, if you go out and start looking at rebellions, small rebellions, not just the gigantic rebellions, um, that re there's some continuity. There's a lot of continuity from the 17th through the 18th century in that... Um, Rebellions uh, uh, persist, uh, and they usually persist because of the underground economy. So instead of rebellions against the creation of a new tax, which is kind of a typical 17th century rebellion, what you have are kind of small-scale rebellions of smugglers, um, you know, shooting it out with or resisting arrest against farm agents. So if you include rebellions against farm agents by smugglers, then all of a sudden, you have real rebellion in the 18th century, um, and this persists right up to 1789. And if you look at uh, Nicolas' data, it suggests that there's, you know, there's sort of uh, even more of these smuggling rebellions in the 1770s and 1780s. Um, and this feeds into the revolution uh, in, because uh, one of the first major rebellions of the revolution uh, was a rebellion by smugglers and their allies against the customs gates that were newly constructed around the city of Paris. Um, and once you realize that that happened against this background of, of contraband rebellion, you realize, ah, there's a whole other story here that feeds into the revolution. Um, and so this is, you know, two days before the taking of the Bastille, there's an enormous rebellion, a uh, series of rebellions against the customs gates uh, surrounding the city of Paris. Um, now, the Bastille then will happen two days later mm -hmm. and kind of steals the show for uh, for historiography. Um, but I thought it was important to highlight uh, that, that how the Contraband Rebellion um, resurfaces during the French Revolution with a vengeance. And then actually from Paris, uh, from that initial attack on the customs gates in Paris, it spreads to the to the provinces, especially in the north and the east. Um, quite virulently, uh, and there there are rebellions throughout the provinces. People throwing off the farm towns, inviting smugglers into their public squares, and openly selling contraband, and doing it kind of joyously, doing it as part of what they see is a larger revolutionary moment uh, and, and movement. Um, and so that's one way in which the story of Mondra and other smugglers kind of feeds in to the revolution. The other way um, has more to do with intellectual history and uh, history of conceptions of the farm, uh, perceptions of the farm by learned elites. You have a lot of uh, learned elites, especially political economists, magistrates, uh, legal thinkers, who are looking at this feedback system that I described earlier, this feedback system uh, whereby farm agents and uh, smugglers are attacking one another violently, filling up prisons, um, causing mayhem, creating um, uh, lots of attacks and, and executions. And the, the intellectuals of the period are horrified by this. Um, this is, uh, for them, it's the age of enlightenment. Things are supposed to be becoming less violent. The age of religious war and violence is in the past, and they want to keep it that way and move beyond it. And yet here in their midst, in the middle of the 18th century, there's this kind of uh, violent mayhem. And so uh, the first people to intervene in this debate are political economists who come up with new ways of thinking about the economy. Uh, and these end up reflecting very poorly on the farm and very poorly on the calico prohibition. Uh, and, uh, you know, by deflection, very poorly on the state and the way the state intervenes in society so that there's a there's a um, a, a kind of um, attack on this 
fiscal system because of what smuggling is doing in the countryside. And so this then feeds into the revolution as well, because many of the deputies in the revolution are steeped in this literature. They are not happy with the general farm, uh, the cahiers de doléances, uh, which are petitions by ordinary people, uh, express great hostility to the farm. Mm. And so, um, there's, there's a, there's a part of the early revolution is, is simply bent on overturning this fiscal system, overturning the, the criminal justice system that's associated with it and establishing a different kind of state. In the conclusion to the book, Michael, you, turn to the question of, you know, what it might mean to consider this history of the dark side of globalization, you know, now at the beginning of the 21st century. And I imagine there are a lot of people who would want to read your book, um, specialists of, you know, French history, people who are interested in the history of this period, but also people who might be interested in um, contemporary issues and questions about globalization. What does this book teach us about how to think about maybe more complicate our thinking about contemporary questions around some of these concerns and issues. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, this is a, it's a very present oriented book mm-hmm. to, to, I should say, uh, uh, right off. And, uh, it was meant to be. So, you know, this is a second book. One has a little more leeway to kind of be flexible, mm-hmm. um, and explore uh, different ways of writing history. Um, and so it was meant to sort of capture a broader audience and also play with things that are going on in our own society uh, in the present. Um, so one thing uh, that struck me were some of the similarities between the underground economy of uh, the 18th century and what we see today in our own underground economy. Um, we know, for example, today that there is an enormous underground economy in the United States and throughout the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, all kinds of things are trafficked, including drugs, arms, uh, counterfeit goods of all kinds, intellectual property, and human beings themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I wanted to kind of give the prehistory to this massive underground economy that's just become part of our own society at this point. The other similarity, uh, which I hinted at earlier, was the repression. Uh, you know, we all know about the war on drugs. I was writing this you know, every day, looking at the New York Times and seeing what the latest tally is in, our, in the U.S. prison system of people who are put in jail uh, and prison for drug-related offenses. Mm-hmm. Uh, and obviously, it's quite high. I mean, we now uh, uh, rule the world in uh, prison per capita prison population. And a lot of that is because of the war on drugs. This was something that was very present in my mind while I was doing research. I kind of play with that analogy in the book um, by calling tobacco, weed sometimes, things like that. I wanted Mm -hmm. uh, to kind of go back and forth between the present and the past um, to kind of reconsider the war on drugs drugs in this new historical uh, perspective. The other uh, striking similarity was uh, the kind of media sensation around the underground economy, right? Uh, think about The Wire, Breaking Bad, uh, and movies, you know, Al Pacino and Scarface. Um, we love to watch and read and listen to songs about the underground economy. Mm-hmm. Um, this was also true in the 18th century, uh, especially with the execution of Montfort. Uh, where, when there's that explosion of, of literature. Um, so that was interesting. And then the public debate on all of this, right? I mean, we have pundits and intellectuals uh, lamenting the repression of the war on drugs, yet the war on drugs continues, though now it is quickly evolving. Um, so all these things, uh, these, were, these were analogies I wanted to draw out. At the same time, you know, thinking about this and going kind of deep into the 18th century and looking at the underground economy and then surfacing, and looking at my own underground economy in 21st century United States, I did notice some really interesting discrepancies. One has to do with race. Uh, in the 18th century, race plays a prominent role uh, on the production side of the underground economy, right? If, if a lot of the economy of the underground economy in the 18th century is based on tobacco, that tobacco is grown in, uh, the, co- in, the, in the colonies, most of it in the colonies of Virginia and Maryland, or the states of Virginia and Maryland once uh, the United States is born. 
by uh, African slaves or slaves of African descent. Uh, that is, it's quite extraordinary how quickly a slave society develops in Virginia around tobacco and that tobacco is largely grown and shipped to Britain uh, in the 18th century and then Britain sells it to the farm. So when I say global, mm-hmm. that's what's going on uh, for tobacco. The tobacco comes from uh, the nor- North America, then gets uh, shipped to Britain and Britain to the farm. Um, and the, some of it obviously doesn't reach the farm. Much of it is diverted, and that becomes the contraband tobacco that then is mixed with European homegrown tobacco. Uh, but the point is, uh, it's, it's mostly slave produced in the New World. Um, today, race is an, is an important factor, less so, I think, in the production of these goods, though I'm sure uh, my Latin American colleagues could, would have much to say mm-hmm. about race and the production of uh, illegal drugs in, uh, for U.S. consumer U.S. consumers. Um, I think that um, now race is a factor in the repression, and this is very obvious to me. We have very high incarceration rates, uh, very high for African-American men in particular. Um, There's a really interesting book uh, calling this a kind of new Jim Crow, mm. this process of incarcerating African-Americans for participating in this illegal drug economy. Um, so that was striking to me, the difference of the way race worked out in both uh, periods. And the other big difference is really the morality of the war on drugs. You know, if you go back and look at the 18th century and the monarchy, the monarchy is not waging a moral crusade against uh, the tobacco itself. Um, or any other product that it's uh, that it's peddling or involved in the in the in, involved in, in trading. It's very the reason why they're pushing tobacco is for purely fiscal reasons, right? To increase its its revenue, um, and the state is not uh, does not have any you know campaigns. This is your brain on drugs type of campaign, <laughs> um, and I found that sort of refreshing. I mean, they're simply there to make money, and they were pretty open about it. Though they did have to sort of try to stigmatize smugglers to prevent them from smuggling, which obviously didn't succeed very well. On the other hand, the war on drugs that's occurred in the United States since really the 1970s, um, when, uh, you know, Nixon, uh, really initiated it, um, is, is heavily moralistic. It's always been moralistic from the very start. That is, drugs are, th- are threat. They corrupt the national moral fiber. And that's why we need to go after these things. They are inherently evil unto themselves. And we need to do all we can uh, to expunge them from our society on these moral grounds. Um, obviously, the morality and the racism are tied in that respect. Um, and so it, it reminded me just to see the lack of morality in the 18th century or the lack of the moral campaign by the state. It, it highlighted how moralistic the U.S. campaign is uh, in prosecuting the war on drugs. Mm-hmm. Now, all this is changing very quickly. Uh, over the last few years, there's been an attempt to um, shift, you know, especially with marijuana, shift marijuana from prohibition to fiscalization, which is kind of interesting because um, that's sort of what the what the cr- the crown was doing with tobacco, trying to fiscalize this product. Um, and this, you know, remains to be seen where this is going to go. Certainly, there will be continue to be underground markets because if you fiscalize marijuana. Um, there will be pe- pe- people out there who will be growing it um, without the taxation on it and will want to sell it for less. So there will continue to be smuggling. But the mores seem to be shifting um, as people suggest that not all of these drugs, uh, illegal drugs, should be classified as illegal and prosecuted in a way that seems um, cruel and uh, excessive. Um, so... This was something I could do by, by looking at smuggling in the 18th century. I could kind of go back and forth between the present and the past and learn something about both the present and the past. I and mean, I thought that was one of the things that made this, this book really fun to write. Well, and I can tell you it's one of the things that made it really interesting and fascinating to read. So I just have one last question for you, Michael, which is what are you working on now? Well, um, I'm writing a kind of synthetic work on the so-called consumer revolution. I may not call it the consumer revolution. I may call it the consumer evolution, but we shall see. Um, but basically, it, it's an attempt to kind of synthesize a lot of work that's been done 
on the rise of consumption between, say, 1650 and 1800. But it will definitely add a more political angle than people are used to, and sort of continuing on from what I've done in my book on contraband. Um, that is to look at the political economies of consumption, consumer politics, um, the role of consumption in the revolution, in the French Revolution, American Revolution, um, uh, and and uh, and elsewhere. And so to kind of get a sense of what this, what it means to have a growth of consumption in political terms, social terms, economic terms. Uh, before the Industrial Revolution occurs. Sounds like a, a great project. I just want to thank you so much, Michael, for, for writing this fascinating book and for, for talking with me about it. Thank you. Thanks a lot for having me. I really enjoyed it.